All right, if you're able, please remain standing for the reading of God's word. We're going to read 3 through 5 as context. We're going to focus our attention on 6 through 8 today of Romans chapter 12. Hear the word of God with me this morning. It says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Now, having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now, I want to tell you guys that God doesn't just save you so that you can go to heaven. There's a what's next. And that's what we've been looking at in Romans 12. Uh, we live in an overlapping age, uh, this age, the old age, and this age to come, which is now invaded into our world, in our hearts. And our God of grace gifts his people with gifts to express his grace to others, to experience and to express the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you look at the first, if you have your Bible open, you can look at 12.1, and you see that the 12.1 says, therefore, in light of his mercies, we're going to think completely different about everything now. And so we think about ourselves, who we are in light of this mercy that we've received. Now, what is the mercy we receive? We have the ability, and I'm going to boil it down to you in a very practical analogy, is that we have the ability to go to middle school on the first day and enter that cafeteria. We have everything we need, not within us, but we have it in the church. I want to explain that to you. We're on the cusp of another year. And the middle school cafeteria is the wildest place on earth. And, I, and you have the ability to go into any situation, whether it be a middle school cafeteria, in your tent, camping in a remote place, on the battlefield, at work, in your home, on the street. No matter where you are, you have this connection that you're not alone. Do you know what it is to, to realize suddenly that you're not alone? You've ever been driving down the interstate and suddenly you see a state trooper clocking you and you're hoping, oh no, I hope he doesn't come after me. Or maybe you realize someone's following you and you're walking on the street and, you're, and all of a sudden you turn the corner and you see, you're nervous and all of a sudden you see police and you're like, oh, that's helpful. Uh, that's just who I need right now. You know, so as you, as you think of the, the, the authority, the one with power uh, and what side you're on with him really matters to your context and your comfort or dread of what you're doing. When you enter into a middle school cafeteria, you have no hope. Like, you have no one with you. You're alone. Everyone's looking at you. You're weird. You're not, you're not, you, you just have this, uh, this insecurity about you. But suddenly, you realize you're not alone. And it's because you are a member of this church. You're a member of the body of Christ. And you have gifts that you are blessed with. And you have other people in your church who are blessed with gifts. And they have a purpose to, to strengthen you. And you have a purpose to strengthen them. 
And this middle school cafeteria situation is just another exercise you're going through to, to, to grow into the image of Christ. Um, if you've ever been where you felt all alone, I've been there. When I was a kindergartner, I, I don't know this, remember, from, I don't actually remember this, but, but my family has told me this story over and over again, is that I was so nervous that I, would, I didn't know anyone, didn't have any friends, that I would never eat my lunch in front of people, and then I would get into the car after my grandmother picked me up, and I would scarf down my lunch in the car because I was so hungry. I was just, you know, I was doing things that I was, I was just so nervous and, 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 and didn't feel like I fit in and I wouldn't, pack, I wouldn't eat my packed lunch. You know, so uh, it's terrible to feel alone, right? God says in Genesis 2, 18, that it's not good for man to be alone. Uh, and then he makes a helper for man, right? We are designed for communion, community, and fellowship and strengthening and giving and strengthening others. And, and that's what we're made, we're, we're made to be in relationships. And so when we feel alone, it's devastating. In our house, we have this little tool called the children's catechism. And the children's catechism is a wonderful tool because it's this small little book, little booklet, and it has all these little nice questions and answers. And they're printed there. And so you, you, you run through them with your children and you ask them the questions and eventually they just know the answers. It's really, it's amazing. Because their, their brains are a sponge and they just suck them up. So one of the questions is, as, you, as we're training them on biblical theology, one of them is, can you see God? And the answer is, no, but he always sees me. And I want to ask, ask you, how is it that he always sees you? I can't see him, but he always sees me. It gets at that really hard concept. You know, we never see God. But he's never far from us. There's a real difference in being truly alone and feeling truly alone, right? That's a huge difference. Sometimes you're just feeling alone, but sometimes you are truly alone. And I'm going to say for the believer in Christ, you are never truly alone, though you may feel that way. That is because you are really one body with each other member of Christ and the fullness of Christ is yours. The Spirit dwells in you, and He gives you gifts. I want to make that clear to you. That's good news. The greatest day of your life might just be today, because it may be the day that you realize you're not truly alone, though you felt that way. You are never truly alone in Christ. Just because you can't see God, the Bible makes it clear that He has never, ever been far from you. He's never far from anyone. But the thing is, is in Christ, he's not far from you and he's for you. Now, it's one thing to be in the presence of God and him not be for you, but in Christ, he is for you. If your faith is in Christ, you're united to him and he has no wrath for you, only goodness and grace. So let me illustrate this through Genesis 1. Genesis 1.1 says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Where does the Holy Spirit show up in the Bible first? God, the Holy Spirit, it says, the earth was without form and void, darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In Hebrew, there are three clauses there, three phrases, and the first two are very dark and negative. It's like a middle school cafeteria, right? It's, it's actually like that. It says, it says uh, the, the earth was without form and void. And the best way to, to, to think of that in Hebrew is topsy-turvy. It's chaos. 
middle school cafeteria, right? The earth was topsy-turvy, and it says darkness over the face of the deep. Again, middle school cafeteria, on and on and on. The parallels are stunning. It's a, it's a really dark, bleak second verse of Genesis. Now, look at this. It says, but the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and then wham, God says, let there be light. Out of the darkness, there's light, and there's order. Light and order. Out of God, the Spirit dwells, and that's what he loves to do, is create light and order where there is not. Communion with God is the Spirit's desire to bring you into a relationship with Christ is one of his jobs. I love the Bible. The Bible is very good to me. The Bible is very good to you. And from the outset, things like this really make me happy. That the Holy Spirit, it's like, God didn't need to tell us this. He didn't need to tell us this on the very second verse of the Bible that the Holy Spirit was there. But he does so to set the expectation that the Holy Spirit is going to be a part of this creation. That God is not far. Though we live in an anti-supernaturalistic world, a rational world, the pattern of this age that tells us that there are no miracles, there is no Lord, and there is no Spirit. It's only physical. That's not where we live. That's not true. The Bible from the outset says there's, let there be light, and the light shines in darkness, and that would foreshadow the Spirit's work in the rest of Scripture. Now, that sets a standard. As Jesus says in Matthew 10, 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father who's in heaven. Now, he's in heaven, he's not, we can't see him, but he's also here. He's guiding the fall of sparrows. He's guiding the most infinitesimal things that we don't even notice. They are guided by God. The Spirit broods and hovers and, and works. In Deuteronomy, uh, it says that this hovering, it's, this is the only time you see this really hovering word used the same way, and it helps us to understand. Deuteronomy 32, 9 through 11, it says this. I want you to write that down and go look at it later. It says, the Lord's portion is his people. He found him in a desert land, in the howling waste of the wilderness, the disorder, the uncreation, right? The wilderness. He encircled him, God did. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. And it says, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over his young, flutters, hovers. That's like the way the Spirit's spoken of over creating. Here he, in the work of redemption, hovers over his young like an eagle, spreading out his wings, catching them and bearing them with his pinions. He guides them. This is the Lord. That's how he works. He creates and he sets free. He guides and protects in Luke, in Acts 17, as Paul is recorded speaking with Greek philosophers, it's, he says to them, you've got all these idols here in your city. I want to tell you who the true God is, right? It says, he's not that far from each of us in 27 of Acts 17. It says, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your poets have recognized, right? They say it, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. It's that, so he's saying there, he's not far from us, but we shouldn't think that we should be able to represent him or see him as you can see an idol of stone or wood, right? 
he can be truly spiritually present everywhere with each of his people because he's not localized to one single place. He's spiritually present everywhere his people are. So God calls us all to repent now and trust him that he is with us. And he's most importantly been in creation in Christ. It says in Colossians 117 that Jesus is before all things and in him all things hold together. Your day, every single day, is held together by Jesus. He didn't just die on the cross, ascend, resurrect and ascend to heaven and leave you hanging. He's hovering over you, holding it all together. That's how he is. When Jesus was, was walking the earth and he was baptized, and even before that, he was governed and sustained and upheld by the Holy Spirit, right? So as we're talking about what a spiritual gift is, we need to go to the source and say, where did this idea come from? Because there were not spiritual gifts in the Old Testament. There was prophecy of spiritual gifts in the New Covenant. And where do we see this begin? We see it begin with Jesus himself, right? It says in John three thirty-four that the Father gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. In Psalm 45, 7, it says, You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness, speaking of the King. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with oil and gladness beyond your companions. Oil and gladness, anointing, is speak for the Spirit. And then in Hebrews 1, 8, 9, it says, Of the Son, he says... Psalm 45, 5 through 6. Your throne is forever. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. You have the Spirit beyond any companion. You have been anointed with the Spirit. He's given without measure to you, Jesus. Prior to his public ministry, the Messiah who died on the cross would not go directly to the cross, but he would grow in every single moment, every single day of Christ's earthly existence was governed and he was upheld and filled by the Holy Spirit. This is true. Even his incarnation. As Isaiah 7.14 said, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And then we see further revelation. Matthew 1.18 says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Boom. The Holy Spirit right there in the womb of the Virgin Mary doing the work, knitting together Jesus, conceiving him in a human being's womb, a woman. There is no way you can read Matthew 1.18 and deny that a conceived life is a person. Conceived, knit together by God. God did it in the womb of the Virgin Mary with the Holy Spirit right there. So as we think about all the natural processes that occur in this situation, we call it natural. Everything is upheld, Colossians 1.17, by Christ the one who is the Lord of the universe, is upheld in his own birth as a human being by the work of the Spirit. As he hovered over creation, here he is hovering over in the darkness of the womb, knitting together and conceiving the Lord Jesus Christ. 
That's profound. The same one who, who is hovering there at creation is there at the outset of the new creation. In the womb, accelerating his development, bringing him to power, to strength, to be a healthy newborn, all the way through the dark years that we don't have a lot of information about before he becomes a 30-year-old man. We have a, a brief story when he's 12. But we don't have that much information. At his baptism, it says that Jesus was given the Spirit. The Spirit descended upon him like a dove and empowered him. The very next verse in Matthew 4.1 after his baptism is that the Spirit led him out in the wilderness to confront Satan. And the Spirit upheld him against Satan. The Spirit equipped Christ to do his work, y'all. Against Satan, he was able to simultaneously, in the temptation stories, obey his Father, keep his integrity, and under the Spirit's guidance, cause Satan to flee. Now that sounds a lot like what we're called to do, actually. To keep our integrity, obey the Father's will, and to put Satan to flee. That's what Jesus did perfectly, though. Now, it says also in Hebrews 9.13 that... The blood of goats and bulls, the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer. Uh, it says, For if those things sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, through the eternal Spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So it says, Through the Holy Spirit, the eternal Spirit, Christ offered himself without blemish to God. How did he make it all the way from birth? to offering up his body on the cross, it says, through the eternal spirit. The spirit equipped Jesus for all the ministry, for all the work. The spirit did it. The spirit is the gift that he received as baptism. The spirit sustains him, supports him, upheld him. His spirit was even committed to the father at his death on the cross, right? He says, into your hands, father, I commit my spirit. What about the body? What's happening to the body? The spirits maintain the body. As, it, as the spirit maintain the body in the womb of the virgin, the spirit upholds the body in the tomb, the darkness of the tomb. The spirit is at work in all of Jesus' days, gifting him without measure. In Acts 1.1, this is the most profound statement. It says, in the first book, Luke says, Luke, Luke wrote Luke and then Acts. He says, in the first book, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Implying that in Acts, he's speaking of the continuing things that Jesus is doing and teaching, right? So Jesus, though he's ascending into heaven in verse 7 and 9 there, he, or 9 and 8, it says this to the disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and the ends of the earth. You are in Christ one who has received power to be a witness to the Christ, right? And we have the gifts of the Spirit to do the work that we're called to do. We have the equipping Spirit who had equipped Jesus for his ministry, who offered up his by the eternal Spirit his body without blemish. We so will be living sacrifices as Romans 12, 1 calls us to be through the work of the Spirit. So let's look at these seven spiritual gifts, right? What's a spiritual gift? It's a gift from God for ministry. And we have them. We all have one. We don't have the same ones. We don't, none of us have them all. But let's look at these seven representative gifts. Let's just look at 
prophecy first. Now, the first one says, if you have, if you have this prophecy gift, you're just do it according to the measure of faith. Now, I would say I kind of have the prophecy gift. I speak, and I don't tell the future, but I speak and measure it by the measure of faith, meaning the word revealed in God's word. I'm not a prophet in the Old Testament sense, but I speak and preach the gospel, right? And, and I, I tell you the will of God for your salvation and what he requires of you. That's what I, that's what I tell you. But you know who the OG prophet was? Jesus. Look at Hebrews 1.1. It says, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. He is the prophet. He is the true prophet. Jesus is the prophet. He has the gift of prophecy in fullness. According to the measure of his faith, it says there, that we're to use this prophecy gift according to the measure of our faith. Jesus himself measured his prophecy by that standard. If you uh, are familiar with John 12, 49, it says, Jesus says, For I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. He measures his speech according to the standard. Jesus measures his speech according to the standard because he is the true prophet. He spoke to us this way, and he measures it according to what God's told him to say. Jesus has the gift of prophecy. Did you know that it says here in the second gift that we have here, what are the spiritual gifts? Second one, it says that we are to also uh, serve. If serving in our serving, uh, do so charitably, right? Simply. It says in Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. This is one of the gifts many of us have. I don't know how the bread gets here every week. It gets here every week. Someone makes it. Someone sets it up. Someone does the things. People have these gifts and serve. People serve. But you know what? That's because Jesus served. Jesus served first and he did it perfectly. We serve as a derivative, as an image of who Jesus is. We find ways to serve. Some of us are better at that than others. We serve. Okay? We do this because Jesus first serves and drives that the Spirit actually drives that. As the Spirit empowered him to be the true servant, he will empower us to be representative servants of Christ as well. Also, did it, says, it says in uh, verse 7, the one who teaches in his teaching, right? So that's the third gift. So we've got prophecy, we've got serving, we've got teaching. Listen to this. Do you think Jesus ever had that gift? Absolutely he had that gift. Listen, it says he opened his mouth in, in Matthew 2, 5, 2, he says, He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for there is the kingdom of heaven. And he goes on for three chapters, teaching, obviously. And then what, how do people respond to that? Mark 1, 22 says, And they, the crowds, were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. So he clearly had the gift of teaching. He's had the gift of prophecy. He had the gift of service. He had the gift of teaching. What did he teach about? Well, it says in Matthew 16, 21, he taught them that he was going to show his disciples he's going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer from the religious leaders, be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter said, whoa, 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 we're not doing that. And he says, far be it from you, Lord, that shall never be. And then Jesus looked at him and said, get behind me, Satan, you're a hindrance to me. He taught them. He says, for you're not setting your minds on the things of God, but on the things of man. He teaches. He has the gift of teaching. Post-resurrection, what did he do? He's walking and he, and he speaks to these disciples. He says, in Luke 24, 44, he goes to the disciples. He says, 
These are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So he teaches, and then he also opens their minds to understand the scriptures. He is the ultimate teacher, right? Because he's able to move the mind to understand. And it says, it says, thus it's written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in the name of all nations, of in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, and you are his witnesses of these things. Again, he's handing the baton of, to the disciples to be teachers, to witness these things and explain them. And that's a purpose right there. Jesus, the ultimate teacher, has given you the gospel to teach. Now, Martin Luther on page two of our sheet, he tries to, to, to distinguish these things uh, of teaching and exhortation, which we'll look at in a minute. But teaching, he says here, is the, the one who builds the foundation. The exhortation is the one who builds upon it and stimulates and moves the, the hearers. So teaching is directed to those who do not know, but exhortation is directed to those who already know. If you get excited about telling people who don't know about Jesus, you might have the gift of teaching. You might have the gift of evangelism. You might have that spiritual gift. If that's something that interests you and intrigues you, that could be your gift. How about that? Now, teaching. That's the uh, third gift, and Jesus certainly had it. And this was the way that the prophets uh, uh, taught here. It says, um, John uh, six forty-five. it says, As is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who's heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now, how do they come to him? Like, there's a lot of people who've, who've lived after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. How are they going to come to the Father? It's through the handing on the baton to be witnesses, to be teachers. And the Spirit gives us the gift to do that, to communicate to those who don't yet know. That's how they're going to be known. They're, they're going to be, we're going to be witnesses all over the place of the gospel, and they're going to teach. What about the next gift? It says in the, in the uh, seventh ver- or the eighth verse as well, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, all right? So exhortation, uh, this could also be looked at as encouragement, right? In Hebrews 6, 17 through 20, it says, When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So God is going to show the heirs of his promises assurance through an oath. Now listen, it says, So that by two unchangeable things in which it's possible for God to lie— we have fled to this refuge. It says, in this we might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Christ has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever. So in his ascension, in his going into the heavenly places, Christ has become the ultimate exhortation, the ultimate encouragement that you have all the boldness, all the confidence to enter into the throne and present your request to God because of who he is for you. His oath will never change. He'll never depart from you. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says as much, that we have the boldness and confidence to approach the throne in Christ, our high priest. He is. It says that you might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before you in Christ. Christ has the ultimate gift of encouragement. And we're all derivative of that. Second, or fifthly, 
What about generosity? What about contribution? Look at eight. It says the one who contributes in generosity. So contributing, sharing, generosity. We just read it in 2 Corinthians 8, 8 through 9. It says, So as for the rich in the present age, charge them not to be proud, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides for us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to serve. That's 1 Timothy. It says in 2 Corinthians, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So, he, so Paul in 1 Timothy 6.17 tells the rich to not be proud, but to be generous with what God's given them. And you know who the ultimate rich man was? was Jesus. He left his throne in heaven and descends to give that we might become rich in Christ. He has the ultimate gift of generosity. The Spirit empowers him for that. The Spirit gives him generosity. Finally, look at this, or look at this. Uh, those who lead, lead with zeal, right? You think Jesus had the leadership goal as well. I would assume he did, right? With zeal. One place in general, it says, at the Passover in John 2, in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen, sheep, and pigeons, and money changers sitting there, and made a whip of cords. This is one of our favorite passages about Jesus, right? He drove them all out of the temple with sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of money changers and overturned their tables, and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered what it was written. Zeal for your house will consume me. In Psalm 69, they quote it. And like, this is the ultimate leader. He had zeal for the father's house. He is willing to do the things no one else is willing to do. And he's going to lead us to where we need to be and direct us to the place with God. Leadership. And then did he have mercy? Did he have cheerfulness with mercy, as the last uh, seventh gift says? It says he does. And in Romans 9, 16, it says, So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Whenever Jesus would hear, he would hear uh, blind people saying, Oh, uh, he'd say, Oh, have mercy on us. And Jesus would turn to them and heal them, right? He'd hear demon-oppressed people say, Jesus, have mercy on us as they pass by. Jesus would heal them. He would open their eyes. He would cast out the demons in mercy. The whole point of Jesus' work of redemption is that we might be saved, right? That we might be saved from sin and death and hell, right? And he does this only because the Spirit has equipped him to do this and fulfill this role. And then we are going to be formed in the image of Christ ourselves. Romans 8 hits differently when you understand it in light of spiritual gifts, right? So these spiritual gifts are Jesus' ultimate, and now they're ours because he's used them first, and he gives them to us as needed. The Spirit, it says, intercedes according to the will of God and distributes gifts for mercy. Romans 8, 27 says this. Read this with me, or listen to this. It says, He who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So the Spirit uniquely knows the will of God, and he knows what's in your heart. He knows both, and he perfectly, it says, does this. It says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. You know, that's the only hope you have, is that the Spirit is working all things for the good. The one who knows what's in you and what's in heaven, and he's given you the gifts that you need and that we need, that I need, 
I need your gifts and you need my gifts. You need all of each other, the body of Christ. He's all the good. The, the people you have around you are who you need in that regard. And it says, 29, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. All right? And whom he also predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What do we say to these things? If God's for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? All the ministry gifts, all the spiritual blessings in Christ are poured out by the work of the Spirit upon us. Why? Ephesians 4, 16 says that the whole body joined together might be held together with every joint and equipped to do the work of ministry, to build up the body in love. That's what we're called to do. As each has received a gift, according to this varying gift uh, strategy that God's given, we are to build one another up in love, and that's a big deal. Therefore, discovering your spiritual gifts is a big deal. Knowing what you are called to do is a big deal. Those could be prophecy, service, teaching, encouragement, contributing, giving, leading, mercy. Why is that a big deal? I'm going to throw this at you. There's a verse in Ephesians 4.32 that says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. How can you grieve the Holy Spirit? Isn't he happy and joyful? Look at this. Think about this. I remember when my mother gave me a Valentine's Day present one time. She gave me these, uh, it's, it's like a box of chocolates and it had nuts in it. And I was like, I don't like almond chocolates. And my mom presents me with this great gift as like she thought she'd spent some time on this thought. That's what Justin needs. And I, I responded by being handed the gift with, I don't like that. And I think that's, that's, that's the quintessential uh, understanding for me of what it is to grieve the Holy Spirit, right? We know our standing of righteousness is not in jeopardy in Christ, but for me to look at my gifts and say, I don't like it. You know, like, that's not, that's like looking at the wisdom of God and the love for me and thinking, well, it's not good enough. It's just not, that's not what I want. And I think that little entitlement, this idea that I, that I, I you know, I don't like it, uh, this unrequited love, this gift that I, he's given me, is exactly what we're talking about with, with, with the gifts of the Spirit. We must receive these gifts with gladness because the purpose is so good. It's so good to not use these gifts is to absolutely spit in the face of the one who has loved us so well. A great passage to think about this as we close is this. Is in, as you think about uh, the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. Remember the, the, the landowner goes out and he leaves with his, with his, with his servants talents in order to, to make, the, make, you know, make something of them, right, while he's gone, right? So he gives one guy five, one guy two, one guy one, and the, the guys who have the most uh, double it. The one guy who has the least buries it. When he comes back, uh, the owner returns. He says, well, uh, you know, you, why, where's, where's my return on this investment I've given you? He says, well, um, I know you're a harsh man. <laughs> And to think about that, like, you, th you can't think about in the, in the ancient Near Eastern world to say to the owner, this authority, I know you're a harsh man, uh, is the most insulting thing ever. To say, I'm not going to use the gift because I'm concerned about you, uh, it's an excuse, but it's, it's absolutely astonishing and, it, and it's, it's grievous. And so 
my question to us is we, is we, as myself, is we have the gifts, we have the spirit, we have Christ. God's made us exactly how we're to be in Christ. He's given us what we need and we're to repent of this, I don't have enough. I have everything I need in Christ. And I have, you know how I have that? Because I have the church. I have his body. I'm not enough in and of myself, but to collectively, every member of the body of Christ is united for our strengthening. And that's how I stand at middle school, wherever I go, because I have the means of grace mediated to me through all the gifts. And I get to use my gifts and, and believe through this analogy of faith, right? I get to see it. Uh, with that said, let's uh, take a moment and ask God to prepare hearts for the Lord's Supper. And God in heaven, we ask that this morning you give us uh, grace to discern the body of Christ and the blood and to be uh, ready to serve you in all that we are called to do in, in this life that you have set us uh, free for, for good works, to be your workmanship. In Christ Jesus we pray. Amen.